chapter 32. Last week I said we finished it. We may not be quite done with it yet, but uh, we did get through to the end of it. By review, it tells us that anyone who is careless can be in great trouble here at the end, and that God will not bring a crop to fruit or to harvest for those who are careless. But we must be very, very careful. And as Paul put it, we must redeem the time. Use the time that we have for a good, fruitful, wise purpose. Not let it just sort of go by. Because if it goes by, we will be left behind if we're not using it and redeeming it according to God's ways. And he says that there will be a great deal of trouble, trial, tribulation, and difficulty, and God himself stripping us bare until we learn, and that mourning will replace joy and happiness. And that's basically what has happened to the church, and it's still happening. And he says this will occur, verse 15, until the Spirit be poured upon us from on high, and the wilderness become a fruitful field, and the fruitful field be counted for a forest. In other words, growth everywhere, and like a forest would spring up. Then judgment shall dwell in the wilderness, and righteousness remain in the fruitful field. So the wilderness is going to blossom, and the church, the remnant of it, will become a fruitful field and remain in righteousness. And the work of righteousness shall be peace, and the effect of righteousness, quietness and assurance forever. Righteousness ultimately will produce peace. If we have warring among us and difficulties and attitudes one to another, it is because we lack righteousness, because righteousness will produce peace. Self-righteousness will produce conflict. True righteousness will produce peace. And he says his people will dwell in a peaceable habitation, verse 18, peaceable surroundings, and in sure dwellings, and in quiet resting places. And it's premillennial, again, because it says in verse 9, When it shall hail, coming down on the forest, and the city shall be low in a low place. He's speaking here of the Assyrian, who is our uh, enemy. They're going to be hailed on. God's people are going to be safe. Then it switches back in verse 20. Blessed are you that sow beside all waters that send forth thither the feet of the ox and the ass. In other words, set their hand to work and use what they have at hand. Uh, an ox or an ass was used to plow. Use what you have to work. Now, I think this applies primarily and first to the church because we did have spiritual Gentiles who tore the church down who took it back to Babylon, as per Zechariah 5, and planted it on its base in Babylon. Two unclean birds, I think both named Tkach. So in that sense, they represented the Assyrian or the Gentile kingdoms of the north, who came and destroyed spiritual Judah. And we have been going through the results of that since. Now, some went straight back to Babylon, didn't they? And to this world's and Satan's religion. But some have clung, however precariously, to the truth. 
but are in confusion, frustration, and difficulty, and whatever they try to accomplish does not seem to work. Now, could it be, and I think you and I have considered this, could it be that they are misdirecting their effort, their energy, and their work? Should it be directed differently? Does God have something different in mind for us at this time, rather than what so many are trying to do, and meeting with a great deal of futility? There is a lot of confusion out there. Sometimes we need, yes, to work harder, but maybe we need to work a whole lot smarter. Some of those people are working very hard at what they're doing, producing booklets and magazines and broadcasts and colleges and various things. They're working very hard at their work. But are they working according to knowledge? Are they working at what God would have them working at? In my lifetime, I've seen a lot of people, and at times I've done it myself, working at things that were accomplishing very little. Blessed are you that sow beside all waters, that is, living waters, according to God's word that send forth the feet of the ox and the ass, to work in the right field at the right time, doing the right thing. Now let's go to chapter 33. I'll flash back here in a little bit to some of these things, but I want to start into chapter 33. Woe to you that spoil. Here again is a reference to the Assyrian. Let's apply it both to those who spoil the church as well as those who will come to spoil physical Israel. And you were not spoiled. In other words, you were being used as a rod of God's anger to destroy the church spiritually or to destroy Israel physically. You weren't spoiled. You seemed to be, in your own mind, doing fine. And it was your job to spoil. And dealt treacherously. And they dealt not treacherously with you. You thought you were getting away with it, in other words. When you shall cease to spoil, you shall be spoiled. There's a prophecy. There's going to come a time when those who have spoiled are going to themselves be spoiled, be it spiritually or physically to the nation, either way. And when you shall make an end to deal treacherously, they shall deal treacherously with you. Those who destroyed the church are going to be destroyed. Those who de destroy physical Israel will themselves be destroyed. We're going to see that as we proceed here from about chapter 36 in Isaiah. God begins to deal with that by re-emphasizing the story of Hezekiah and the Assyrian and what happened there. O Lord, be gracious to us, we have waited for you. Now that has to refer to those who have waited for and been patient for God. I think it applies basically to the church. Is Israel as a nation waiting for God? I mean, 
paid attention to God, do they? If they do, they worship the wrong God and don't know what they worship. So this has to be a reference to God's called out once, his people, his church. Be you their arm every morning, that is, his arm stretched out against our enemies. Be the arm they have to deal with every morning. Our salvation also in the time of trouble. So deal with them with your mighty arm and be our trust and salvation in our time of trouble. And the church is today certainly in a time of trouble. At the noise of the tumult, the people fled. At the lifting up of yourself, the nations were scattered. So he says, protect us, but when you lift up your arm, you're going to scatter our enemies, be they spiritual enemies or when they physically come after us. Because the Assyrian is going to not only have scattered us spiritually, but then a war machine of physical Assyrians will come against the church, as well as the physical nation. And we're going to see before we're done here that they're going to come after the church primarily. That is their main target. Now, Satan wants all Israel physically destroyed, yes. But above all, he wants spiritual Israel destroyed. It's his first target. So... Isaiah is pleading here for God to scatter the enemies. And your spoils shall be gathered like the gathering of the caterpillar, as the running to and fro of locusts shall he run upon them. God is going to come upon the Assyrian just like a swarm of locusts or caterpillars. You know, you've read stories about them eating everything in their path. Well, Joel describes that. The eternal is exalted. For he dwells on high, he has filled Zion with judgment and righteousness. Now his church, he is going to fill with proper judgment and with righteousness. We are candidates to be filled with good judgment and righteousness. We are the ones he has called, selected to teach his truth to, and there are going to be some who will pursue that and seek it like gold and silver. There will be others who despise it or who do not pay much attention to it. They all slumbered and slept. Some will wake up. We can be some of those. I hope we are waking up. Now notice, and wisdom and knowledge shall be your stability of your times. The thing that is going to stabilize us, if we will pay attention to God, is knowledge, don't those who have knowledge have control, that is stability, control of themselves, in control of the situation. Let's say somebody is terribly injured. Who has stability? Who has strength? Who has good judgment? Those who have knowledge 
of what to do in that situation. Those who do not have knowledge of what to do, let's say in a first aid case like that, have to stand back and worry and be afraid because they don't know what to do. But those who have some training and experience have a better idea of what to do. Now, when you have a church which has been terribly damaged and is in desperate need of first aid lest it bleed to death, you have to have correct knowledge to know what to do in order to save it. So it is correct knowledge and good judgment, wisdom. Wisdom basically is defined as knowing what to do and when to do it. When you say that is a wise person, what are you implying? You're implying that they have correct knowledge and that through that knowledge they will make good decisions and that the uh, outcome will be correct. Therefore, you ascribe wisdom to them. Now, that is what the church needs today to stabilize. It needs proper knowledge and understanding of what is going on and the wisdom to know what to do about it in order to gain stability in a confusing time. There's a lot of information being put out by a lot of different organizations. How much of it is correct? How much is incorrect? How much is a confusion and a babel? Babel comes from Babylon. Babel. God confused the language. And when the church went back into Babylon, guess what? Spiritual language is now confused. Wisdom and knowledge shall be the stability of your times and strength of salvation. The fear of the eternal is his treasure. He treasures those who will fear him. Now, if you fear him, what will you do? If you fear him, you will listen carefully to what he says, and you will do what he says. Isn't that what fear produces? Let's say on a physical level. level someone says, you do this, this, and this, or I will kill you. And you believe that they will. What will you tend to do? If you fear them, and you fear that they will kill you, you will tend to listen carefully to what they say, and then you will do what they say, so that you aren't shocked. Now, there are terrorists in Iraq who are trying to do that to the United States and its coalition. Every time they capture someone, a hostage, they tell the hostage, you do what we say or we will kill you. And to America they say, you do what we say or we will kill your hostage, our hostage from you. Now, we do not fear them as a nation to the point we listen to them. So what do they do? They line the hostages up and cut their heads off. 
hoping that they can instill fear in us so that we might do what they say. If we start giving in to them, though, it just gets worse and worse. So we know we cannot afford to fear them. God has told us we cannot afford to fear the world, but we must learn to fear him. And it is a treasure to him that a certain amount of people will fear him and therefore listen carefully to what he says and do what he says. So knowledge and the wisdom to use that knowledge will be the stability of our times. That's why he tells us back in Isaiah 30, which we've already gone over, but I think perhaps it is worth emphasizing that Isaiah 30, verses 20 and 21, are referring to now. They're not just millennial. We pull those two verses out of context and use them to show that during the millennium we'll see our teachers and they'll tell us to go to the right or to the left, and this is the way walk you in it. Now, it is true that that carries over to the millennium, and certainly we as kings and priests will be there to teach people what is right and what is wrong, to guide them and to lead them. But that must start now. This is a, an end-time context. And when we are leaderless, what happens? You see people wandering about, seeking, and generally not finding. God says in the New Testament that we must have teachers. And yet there are many today who say, I don't need a teacher. I'll teach myself. The Bible's here. I don't need anyone to tell me what to do. Or no man is going to get between me and God. Now, those are not statements that are made according to knowledge. They are statements that are made according to experience and emotion. The experience was the abuse and wrong use of government in the church of God. It was a lack of knowledge of what God's government is that caused us in worldwide to misuse and abuse leadership. The statement was often made, repeated over and over, thousands and thousands, tens of thousands of times in worldwide, this is the government of God on earth. No, it was not the government of God on earth. The government of God, when it is established upon earth, will increase and it will never end. What we had and didn't understand, we had a lack of knowledge, we did not use government wisely, and as a result, we had chaos and confusion. Abuse and misuse. What we didn't understand is that God's government is the government of God by God, and will be established in the millennium through the Father, the Son, and we who will be God. Meantime, what we have been dealing with in the church is a government of men trying to govern as God would govern, and so often failing miserably. 
So what you and I have experienced, and the war stories we have told, and I hope are beginning to quit telling, they've been rehearsed, they've been talked about, let's move on. Those stories came from bad experiments, and they caused an emotional reaction in us as a result of bad experience that we're still having to deal with. Now, the way worldwide looked at it, and this is, this is fundamental to understanding, and it's fundamental for clearing the bad emotion and the cobwebs out of our heads, brethren, so that we might understand and so that we might be willing to accept good teaching from men, such as they are, today. No one who is honest can truly deny that God had teachers in the New Testament, not just the Old. The Gospel was first given to the Apostles, the Prophets, well, the Prophets in the Old Testament and Moses, and the apostles in the New Testament. And they went about teaching, preaching, and there was organization in the New Testament church. That is absolutely undeniable in Scripture. You have to throw out nearly all the New Testament to believe that, or to not believe that. So there was organization that was formed, didn't Paul say, there are different administrations. So it was there. But it is our emotional reaction to having been misabused that has led us not to want government. Now, I was about, before I launched into that, to explain what should alleviate our minds and what should allow us to get rid of the bitterness and the resistance we have against government. First of all, consider this statement. All proper government should be self-government. God governs himself. Jesus Christ governs himself. When Jesus Christ was on this earth, he had to govern his every thought, his every action. No one did it for him. He had to govern himself. Now, he realized as a human being how pitiful, how weak, and how sinful his nature was, because he had the nature of man. So he continually and constantly went to his father for strength and help so that he might govern himself. Without guidance, direction, strength, power from the Father in heaven, who was still a spirit, he could not have governed himself properly. So, the object of God, the Father, is to get his children to govern themselves according to his way. That is his object and his purpose. In a family, the father is set as the head, and he is responsible 
for the overall conduct of the family. It is, it is his job, his duty, to see that by using proper methods, proper patience, guidance, wisdom, mercy, chastening, all the tools that are at his behest, to see that his children learn to govern themselves. There is no room for a father or a husband to be a tyrant, to suppress, squash the wife or the children in the way that the ministry squashed the brethren in Worldwide Church of God. There is no room for that. There is room for proper discipline if the children do not have the respect and the fear of the parents in the right way that they ought to have. Government should be there. It should be used properly. A, by example to the children of living correctly and not being a hypocrite. That is the strongest influence you can have on your children. If you govern yourself, your mind, and your life, According to the ways of God, that is the greatest influence for good you can possibly have on your children. Because they see you governing yourself properly, then they say, whether consciously or not, I must therefore govern myself properly. There is no way with a stick or a rod or a belt or removal of privilege or whatever that you can beat a child into governing himself. You have to, by example, by instruction, and sometimes by chastening, if they do not control themselves, teach them to control themselves. In other words, you tell the child, you do this. The child does something else. Obviously, the child had no fear of repercussion from what you said. So, if he does not control himself in what you told him, you have to supply the control by whatever means at hand in order to teach that child to control himself. That's your job. So, self-control... Self-government is the key and the basis of all government. God sets a perfect example of self-control. So does Jesus Christ. We as parents struggle to be like them, and our children see us struggling, but let not them see insincerity or hypocrisy. Let them see us working so hard at controlling ourselves that they admire what they see, and then guide them and lead them, chasten them, so that they might control themselves. A child who does not control himself is not a happy child. Any human being, being young or old, who does not control mind and emotions of his own is not a happy person. So many, many people on the face of this earth know they need to change certain things. They know that what they are doing is destructive and harmful to happiness and peace and joy. 
be it wrong habits, be it weaknesses of whatever kind, lack of management of money or smoke or drugs or alcohol or, you know, name a thousand things that people have trouble controlling. And there's a frustration. Generally, people who have trouble controlling their children have trouble controlling themselves. It is their own lack of control that sets a bad example for the children, and then the children have trouble controlling their attitudes. Is it any wonder the parents who scream at children have children who scream at each other or scream back at the parents? That's the example that is set for them, and that's what they follow. Now, God is in perfect control of himself, and he wants us to come to have wisdom and knowledge of how to control ourselves. Now, where does the church fit into this? I am not here to tell you, as we were told on an organizational chart in Worldwide Church of God, and that chart was absolutely wrong. Any organizational chart they would have made, and some still make to this day, would be God the Father at the top, Jesus Christ underneath, and whoever might be the designated apostle, third, then down through the pastors and the elders, and finally you. And you had to go through the elder, the pastor, the apostle, to the father, and the son, the son and the father. Wrong organizational chart. When Jesus Christ died, the veil of the temple was rent in two, so that the holiest of holies, absolute total access to the Father, was made possible for anyone who accepted the terms of the new covenant and was willing to go. Every one of us who are baptized has direct, absolute, instantaneous access to the Father, with no one in between. That is the proper organizational chart. Father, Son, you. Okay? Does that make you feel a little better? Should. All right, where does the church fit in the proper organizational chart? The church is the mother of us all. The ministry, therefore, is in the position of mother. Now, a mother should never come between the child and the father. That's not her job. Her job is to help the children obey and respect their father. He's their head. The mother should never come between father and child. A family organizational chart does not show father, mother, child. All your children should have direct access to you as their father. They should be able to come to you at any time without the mother standing and saying, No. Where is the mother in the organizational chart? Here's the father and the son, and here is you. 
The mother is over here. She's connected from the father to the child from the side. It is not a direct line. Father, son, church, you. Father, son, you. Children have access in a family to the mother and the father. But the mother should never come between the father and child. She should stay to the side in that sense organizationally and should never move in and block access to the father. On a practical basis, if the father is correcting the children, it does no good to have a mother trying to come in between and despise whatever the father is trying to do. When the father and the mother fight over the conduct of the children, the family just goes further into dysfunction. The mother is always there to back the father. Now, if she disagrees with the father, nothing should be said in front of the children. They should go in another room, soundproofed, or onto another county, whatever it takes, and discuss it privately without the children hearing. Get their ducks lined up properly, then they can help the children govern themselves properly. The church is never there to interfere with your communication with the Father. The church is there on the side to help you in your relationship with the Father. To teach you the Father's words. Now, the Father's word is written here, but he has written it in a way that you can be taken, snared, and deceived. And there are those to whom he has given gifts, knowledge, insight, to be able to help you understand it. When they came out of Babylon, remember, they built a pulpit of wood, and Ezra and Nehemiah stood up on the pulpit and read the word of God and gave the sense thereof. That is, expounded, explained, helped them understand. And that is exactly what the New Testament ministry did. They took the Old Testament, which was the only Bible they had at the time, and showed how all those Old Testament principles had an application in the New Covenant. That's why they quoted the Old Testament continually. It's so that we might understand how to apply. That, that's what wisdom is, isn't it? There's an awful lot of knowledge in the Old Testament that we need to have the wisdom and understanding to apply to the New Covenant. And that's what Paul, James, and Peter did. They took the principles of the Old Testament and applied every one of them to the New Testament. None of the principles of the Old Testament, none of the instruction in the Old Testament is done away. None of it. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. His word is always good. None of it is done away. In some cases, the application is different. Instead of sacrificing a sheep, cutting its throat, Jesus Christ had his blood given. He became the overall sacrifice. And if we follow his example and his steps, then Paul made it clear in Romans 12:1, we are to become a daily sacrifice. 
sacrificing our life and our time, our energy, for God and for our brethren. We are called upon to give a daily sacrifice. See, the daily sacrifice isn't done away. We are the living sacrifice instead of a dead lamb every day. Nothing is done away. The application is somewhat different. Now, you needed the apostles and Paul. Well, he was an apostle too, but the apostles whom Christ taught, and then Paul whom he taught in the desert three and a half years, and all those ministry under them to help us understand. That is why today we need teachers to show us when we start to stray what is right and what is wrong and to say this is the way to God walk you in it. Here is the path to God. That's my job. It's not to be between you and God at all. It's my job to stand over here and say one. God's over there. Go. Go to him. Here's what he says to do. Do this. Now, in that, like a mother, the ministry has a certain amount of power which is given in the Bible, seen clearly in the New Testament, to correct, to guide, to show when we are going wrong in our path to God. Just as the mother, when the father's off from the home, he's at work, it's her job to say, now children, this is what your father said we need to do today. This is the code of conduct your father laid down for this family. She is there to back the father, to do as he instructed to guide and lead the children in the path that the Father has prescribed is correct for the family. Now, hopefully, he has been studying God's Word and is setting this book as the standard for the family. And if he is, the mother can confidently say, this is what your father wants done. And she is there as an enforcer of the Father's work. Paul could disfellowship the man who was committing incest. He could turn him over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that he might repent spiritually. Those are examples in the Bible. Every mother in a physical family has the right not only the right, but the duty and the responsibility to see that her children and the children of her husband comply with the Father's overall guidance for the family. And in his absence, it is her duty to guide, to lead, to correct, to chasten. A mother who says, just wait till your father comes, is doing a disservice to her children. Any minister who just stands back and says, wait till the father comes, is doing a disservice to God's children. That is why we are instructed not to preach smooth and easy things, but to preach hard and difficult things. To tell us the error of our ways to say this is the way, walk in it.
That is our God-given responsibility. It is one that must be fulfilled, or we will answer to him when he comes through his Son. Let's understand government so that we can get in line with government. Not despise it, put it down, and try to get rid of it. A child who sees a misuse of government has the attitude, I want to get away from government. I'm out of here. That's their attitude. If they have been given the right example, and they have been instructed properly with the right government, that is not going to be their reaction. If they have that attitude, then we need to take some very, very careful, close looks at ourselves and see what could be wrong. Because we're not getting the right reaction. The fruits are not good. Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. Now, we did not train up God's children as a ministry, as a church, as a mother, in the way that they should go. And many are departing from it. I say that to our and my shame. And when we see the fruits being spewed out of God's mouth, we have to recognize our failure as a mother and set the right example, love, mercy, patience, coupled with the correct and right form of discipline to say, this is the way, walk in it, so you will not be spewed again or continue to be spewed. I take a pretty hard line compared to most of the ministry today. That is a reaction to seeing God's children in absolute confusion and scattering. Children who were not following what the Father wanted done. He wanted their love, their affection, their feelings, their hearts. And the ministry allowed them to give their hearts to the world. Allowed them to give their hearts to themselves in self-worship. Allowed them not to do what the Father said. Now we must gently, lovingly, kindly, and patiently lead them into the right path. Where does it start? It has to start with me. It has to start with the mother, the ministry. We have to come into line with what the Father says. We have to come to understand the true knowledge of what he wanted. We have to turn our hearts, I have to turn my heart to God with all my being. And I have to preach that to you so that your Father will be pleased with you. 
take it very heavily and very seriously. I wrestle with it every day. Now, if you, as a father, are not wrestling with yourself to be like and think like God every day and to turn your whole heart to God, your family is going to remain dysfunctional. But if you govern yourself properly, and if you mothers govern yourselves and your children properly, your family will begin to pull together instead of apart. Just as his faithful remnant, his children, with the proper guidance and help and direction from the mother, will begin to pull themselves together. It is never my job to come between you and your father. It is my job to help you honor, respect, worship, and go to your father on a daily basis and seek his will and way. Now, in the church, we have confusion and we have lack of wisdom and lack of knowledge for the most part today. Most still do not understand the proper form of government, as I just described. Gover true government was not restored under Herbert W. Armstrong. Now, he himself understood a lot of what government should be. He tended to be a very compassionate, merciful, patient person on a personal level. And yet he could get very angry at times. And I've had his wrath against me a couple of times talking on the phone with him. to fire me. One poor fellow got fired how many times in one day? Seven or more, I forget now. Today he probably remembers. <laughs> and he did fire me once. And it stuck. He didn't hire me back five minutes later. He said, you get yourself straightened out, then I'll hire you back what he told me. That's all I can tell you. But he, I think, mistakenly would have made the organizational chart father, son, apostle, and on that. And those under him saw themselves in that chart and lorded it over the people, something the New Testament tells us not to do to treat them as fathers, mothers, brothers, sisters, and so on. As family. And family government. Now, there are those who understand that it should be family government, but they don't understand how a family should be governed. Self-control is the key. Anyone who just tries to control their children's human nature... <laughs> is headed for trouble. Because human nature will find a way around anything you tell them to do if they are not taught self-control. Self-control is the key to all government. 
controlled by the one who is in charge and controlled by everyone who is then in charge of himself. I can't control you, can I? Can I control you? Not at all. You have to control yourself. It is my job to point out what needs controlled. It is your job to then go control it. We were out of control in Babylon, doing the things of Babylon. And it's my job to point out what is Babylonish, what is wrong. But I can't drag you out of it. I can remind you. I can guide you. I can give you insights. But you have to slay your own idols. Doesn't it say that every man will take the covering off his idols? I can only tell you we have idols. I can point out what idolatry is. But you have to strip it off yourself and say, I see it, that's my idol. I must control myself. I must destroy my idols. You see, it's not me, then, that is between you and God. It's your idol that is between you and God. Self is the foremost idol that we put between us and God. Not my business between you and God. It's my God, my job to tell you this, 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 and this are your idols. Get rid of them so you can be close to God. That is proper governance. It is the mother's job to tell the children, you need to control this, 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 and this so that you can please your father when he comes home. And I'm not just the reporter to tattletale on you and get your dad to come down on you. It is your job to help them control themselves. That's why God gave a woman the gift she has. She can multitask. She can have three or four things going at once. And in that milieu or that mix, she can also see that the child is obviously not controlling himself. And if the child is too young and immature to do so, then it is the mother's job to help that child control himself, to point him in the right way, to guide, to lead, to correct the discipline as necessary so that that child learns self-control. As I've said before, your job is to take that squalling little baby who has no control of himself, teach him self-control, teach him emotional control, teach him mental control, so that Slowly, as that child grows and matures and has more control, you can release your control. And when you're done with your job, the child should be able to stand as a mature adult who can control emotions, feelings, money, desires, lusts. It's your job to help that child learn self-control. As many parents have learned, they did not do that job. And as soon as those children were removed physically from that control, they fell apart.
What happened to us when our leadership in this physical church died? We had not learned self-control, and as a result, we have been out of control, or only partially in control. Wisdom and knowledge shall be the stability of your times. We need the knowledge, first of all, of correct government, so that we can learn wisdom and how we rule ourselves. So that we will not have a situation where we will try to act right when the minister is there, but when he's not, we'll do whatever we will please. If you have that attitude, you don't understand government, and I haven't done my job in helping you to understand that, so I need to keep at it. So that when no one is there who represents government, quote-unquote, in your mind, you will still govern yourself properly. It's what we do and say and think in the dark that counts. Not what we do when we are in view of someone who is a so-called authority figure. You're doing yourself a disservice if you bootleg when the preacher's around and do what you well please when he's not. You obviously have not gotten the picture in that case of what self-government is and how important it is for you to control yourself as God controls himself. That is our goal and purpose. That is the reason for government. Self-government is the bottom line. God the Father does not need anyone to govern him because he governs himself perfectly. Jesus Christ is the same way. And we are to become like him. Does the Father have to govern Christ? No. They think alike. They react alike. They have become one. And he wants us to become one as the Father and the Son are one. You see, once we learn to perfectly govern every thought, every reaction, according to God's will and purpose, we will have a completely peaceful, harmonious existence. Because no one will have a lack of self-control. Then you don't need government to come down. We will be a bride, but at the same time, there will be a place for a mother. Why? Because all those little children in the, in the millennium, be they children physically or spiritually, are going to need to be taught to control themselves, and to become like the Father. The same thing that we're trying to do today is exactly what we will do in the millennium. So we have a mother here today to say, this is the way, walk you in it. When you go to the right or the left, they say, hey, wait a minute, wait a minute, that's not the way to go. This is the way, walk in it. This is the path to the Father. We must learn true government. I don't know how to emphasize this anymore. 
God's true government has to be restored. It was partially restored in worldwide, but what happened was exactly what Christ told the prospective apostles not to do. He said, do not rule as the Gentiles rule. But we look at Matthew 16, 18, which seemed to say, you have the power, therefore rule as the Gentiles rule. We did not rule according to wisdom and proper knowledge. We must understand the organizational chart if we're going to move up in the organization. Now, isn't that true of corporations here on earth today? If you're going to move up in the management and on up into the managerial structure, you have to understand the goals and the purposes, the pressure points, the on buttons of that corporation. And the quicker you get in line with that, the quicker you're going to move up the corporate ladder. And people say, well, why do you get that promotion? Well, it's because he or she thought, came to understand what the corporation wanted and began to get in line with it, and were moved up. Now, sometimes they use falseness because those in the corporation like to be patted on the back, and they like their boots polished and their behinds kissed. So, they become behind kissers and boot polishers, and they move up. Now, whether the corporation realizes it or not, that corporation is governed by human nature. So, what those people have learned is how to use human nature on those above them. So, sometimes people who do not truly deserve on merit go up the organizational ladder, and you do have a complaint. They're using human nature to get what they want, selfishness of those above them. Now, in God's organization, it should not be that way. What we need to understand is what God's purpose and plan is, what pleases him, what would cause him to want to move us up in the organization. I want to be part of the bride of Christ, okay? That's a lofty goal. Very important position to be the bride of Christ and the mother for the millennial children. Now, if I am going to become the bride of a perfect husband, what do I need? I need the wedding garments of righteousness. I need to come to think and act like those at the top of the organizational structure think and act. And if I do that, I'll be promoted to bride. He wants a clean, pure, white, virgin bride. And I am one who has sinned, as everyone else has, and I have chased every false idol and whored after the wrong goals and purposes and selfish interests in my life. 
And if I'm going to be presented as a chaste virgin bride to God, then I have to be cleansed of all that impurity. I have to be cleansed of all the filth. I have to be shown in this word what is the right way to go rather than the selfish way to go. And then I can be reckoned as pure and white through the forgiveness and the washing of Jesus Christ's blood. Because it can wash away every impurity, every uncleanness. But he says, overcome, and you will be granted a new name and to walk with him at his throne. It isn't enough to say, that's a nice organization, I think I'd like to be the bride. Hello? I volunteer. Not enough. We have to put on the garments of righteousness. Isn't a mother there to teach her daughters how to be a proper wife and bride? Or bride and wife? Yeah. To instruct her in what a woman ought to be for her husband. That's the job of the church. If we get this all confused and turned around, as we did, we have a dysfunctional family. Look at the church of God today. What do you see? A dysfunctional family. Split, divided, torn. Because we didn't understand and didn't govern ourselves. As a result, God said, I don't want these children around me anymore. Get them out of here, Mama. And that's exactly what has happened. Now, I wanted to go into, and perhaps I will at this juncture then, rather than moving forward in this chapter, I want to address a question which I addressed in Bible study the other night, but I'd like to address it not only again here in this context, but to all of you out there who are on the telephone, and so that it is also on tape for the future. And I'll show you how this ties in with what I'm saying, hopefully before I'm done. i got about a half hour, so I better get going. The question arose, has Satan been cast back to the earth? You know, the final casting as uh, listed in Revelation 12. And the one who raised that question said, maybe it has happened. Based on what he was seeing and feeling, he thought maybe it had happened. Now, I've addressed this before, perhaps not in the completeness I did in Bible study the other night. Over the years, I witnessed Herbert Armstrong saying over a period of decades, several different times, maybe Satan's been cast back to the earth. When did I witness him saying that? When he was in trouble. When the state of California came against the church. When there was a great rebellion. When there was a great big doctrinal hooperaw. When there was great trouble in the church, he would lean back on that and say, maybe Satan has been cast down for the final time and has come against us. Now, that might be a reasonable reaction, but I see two big problems with it. Well, actually more than that. First, 
it was a wrong reaction because it hadn't happened and therefore was misapplied. Now let's look at points A and B under that overall premise. A, it hadn't, I mean, number one, it hadn't happened. He thought it might have. Now what would have led him to think that? A, lack of understanding of Scripture, and B, there was a lot of room there for exclusivity of the mind and spiritual pride. Let me explain. Let's go to Revelation 12. This is, this is not just a specific subject only. It is one of a plethora of subjects at which we can come in error, lack wisdom and stability in, if we don't have the right wisdom and knowledge. So let's pick up the principle here, not just the, the specific subject, okay? Revelation 12, verse 7, I'll pick it up there. There was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon fought and his angels. Now, is there anyone here who thinks that this was done a long time ago, or do we see it in context of the book of Revelation, which is, in its own definition in chapter 1, a prophecy of things to come. And if Revelation is a prophecy of things to come, recognized by all hands, I think, here we are in chapter 12, over halfway through it. So it has to be something to come in the future from when John wrote it, not something that happened before Adam and Eve were created. We all recognize, I think, chapter 12 to be something yet in the future, and that's why we speculate as to when this may have just now happened. It is something that is near to come, I believe. But there was war in heaven, and the dragon fought and his angels, and prevailed not, neither was their place found any more in heaven. When this battle of verses 7 and 8 occurs, Satan will never again be allowed to go to God's throne. Never, ever again. And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceives the whole world. Right now, the whole world is deceived. A few exceptions of those whom God has called out and given his truth. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. So he's cast, and his demons, from the throne of God to the earth. They have been given access from Adam and Eve on down to the throne of God. Just as Christ... achieved um, the job of ruling the earth when Satan tempted him and he overcame it. Now, he was, he qualified, that's the word I was looking for, he qualified to rule the earth at that time. But there has been 2,000 years in which he has not come and taken that job from Satan. It's like being 
elected on the first Tuesday of next month, but not taking office until the 20th of January. Christ is qualified, but he has not come and taken rule. Now, overall, he and the Father rule the universe, don't get me wrong. But they have allowed Satan to continue to rule and deceive this earth. He is the prince of the power of the air. He is the present ruler of this world in Christ's own words. So even though Christ has been selected, elected, if you please, to take over, he has not yet done so. And Satan has been allowed to go before the throne of God and to accuse you and me day and night. We're going to read that here in a moment. And I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now is come salvation and strength in the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ. For the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. When he is cast down, is the time that salvation and strength and the power of Christ will be shown. He knows your name. He knows my name. He goes before the Father and the Son at the throne of God and makes accusations against you and me day and night. He knows us by name. I told a story which I've told before, but I'll repeat it here for emphasis. When I was in Miami in the middle, middle 60s, late 60s, I had a long, big box full of letters from people who had written to Ambassador College for visits. And I wanted to work the area, basically. And I was to go out and contact all those people. So a lot of them I called ahead, I wrote ahead, I tried to find out if they were still around, because some of those requests were three and four years old. But one day I was visiting in Palm Beach, and I saw this address that was nearby. I had not written them, I had not called them, I had not contacted them in any way. I went to the door of this mobile home, banged on the door, the door swung open, and the one who stuck the head out said... I know you're, you, you're Daryl Henson from Ambassador College. I got goosebumps from here to there, and I'm getting them now again, just remembering the story. They knew who I was and where I was from. And I talked a few minutes and realized that that mobile home was full of demons. Well, I knew it the minute they said that, but it was confirmed upon talking for a few minutes, and I never went in. I just left. They know us. Even as God numbers the hair of your head and knows you inside and out, Satan is quite aware of each and every one of us and knows our names. You are not called and given the Spirit of God and the light that comes with it without Satan becoming aware of it. And he takes your name to the Father, day and night. And he's accused me of a lot of things I've done. And I'd like to say it was all false accusation, but it wasn't. I hope it's getting to the point that some of the accusation is false. 
And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb, through the sacrifice of Christ, by the word of their testimony, and they loved not their lives to the death. They put God first, even if they had to die physically. Seek not to save your life or you'll lose it. Seek not to lose it or you'll save it. The words of Christ. He says, this will be lived in the lives of his people at the end. Therefore rejoice, you heavens, and you that dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and of the sea, for the devil has come down to you having great wrath, because he knows that he has but a short time. He's going to come and wreak his wrath upon the whole world, but who is he going to come after the most? And when the dragon saw that he was cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman which brought forth the man-child, the church that was producing Christ in its life, or in their lives. That's the ones he wanted the worst. That's the ones he comes after first. And the woman were given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness into her place where she's nourished for three and a half years. When Satan is cast out, his anger is going to be at everyone, but the first one he's going to chase is the church. Is the church being chased? Or have we been given the wings of an eagle to fly into her place and stay and be protected? No. Satan will be cast down right at the beginning of the tribulation. When he's cast down, he knows he only has three and a half years left, and he's going to get with it. And he's going to chase the church into her place of safety. Then you will know that Satan has been cast down for the final time. In the meantime, he is not. Now let's understand the self-righteousness and spiritual pride part. We tend to think, as human beings, that we are right. We tend to think we're the apple of God's eye. We tend to think that God is using us, not someone else. Now you look through all the organizations. They name themselves the steadfast, the chaste, the very elect. I think one even called itself the very, very elect. The global. The living as opposed to everyone else who is dead. The united, which is disunited. The Philadelphia, which governs with a thumb of iron. And I don't mean to be picking on just, just the ones that are start coming to mind. We like to put a name upon ourselves which indicates that we are the best of all. And the scriptures indicate that the virgins will compare themselves among themselves, which is not wise and according to knowledge, and try to show who is the best. Am I not the fairest of them all? And there's a lot of spiritual pride that gets in there. Now, when that is in the mind, whether it is recognized or not, when trouble comes, there are generally two scapegoats that we pin, or donkeys that we pin the tail on. It's easy to pin it on Satan. Satan's doing this to us. 
Remember at the feast when we had trouble with the telephone transmissions? And the subject came up. Well, Satan's trying to destroy this transmission. I thought about that. I think the next day I came back and said, maybe God is not pleased with us. Maybe we'd better look at ourselves and see if God might be upset with us. Now, who does most of the church blame the present trouble on? It's physical leaders or Satan the devil. And yet we have seen dozens, hundreds of scriptures which show at the end time God is the one who is spewing the church out of his mouth. So what most people in the church today do is blame the devil and figure God is on their side. That they are the good ones or Philadelphians or however they term it. And everyone else is the problem. So they blame it on the devil or everyone else, but not on themselves. Now this is a basic misunderstanding of government. It is a basic misunderstanding of God. It is a fundamental misunderstanding of Scripture, the Word of God. Because the Word of God says, I, God speaking, have done this to you. I have scattered you. I have taken the hedges away from you. I have torn down the wall of the vineyard. I have knocked the watchmen down. I have scattered you. Without wisdom and proper knowledge, we have had the wrong reaction. So when we have trouble, we don't say, there must be something with me, I better get on my knees and repent. We say, the devil did it, he must have been cast out. Because if trouble is coming to us, it's not because we haven't pleased God, it's because we have pleased God and the devil's after us. Wrong conclusion based on wrong knowledge and wrong attitude towards self. This could not be coming from God because ain't I doing okay? Aren't I rich and increased with spiritual goods? Don't we have the correct understanding? Spiritual pride blinds our eyes to where the true trouble is coming from. The father is upset with the children because the children have not governed themselves properly. And he can't stand rebellious children. So he is disciplining us, disciplining us as per Hebrews 12. He chastens every son whom he loves. He said, I gave you my word, you agreed to keep it. When you went into that watery grave at baptism, you agreed to live by every word of God. You accepted my proposal, covenant, agreement, my marriage conditions, but you haven't been living up to them. You don't love me with your whole heart, soul, body, and mind. You love the things of this world. You love the things that please self. You don't love me with your whole heart, so you're not qualified to be my bride. Therefore, 
I will chasten you until you repent. I called this group from the beginning a congregation or church of God. Because I did not want myself or you to think that we are any better than anyone else. I did not want my name to set us aside or set us above, by comparison, anyone else. We are some of the people of God. And only then, as we control ourselves and live by this covenant, every word of God. We cannot afford to be pharisaical, to stand and say, God must be pleased with us because of look what all we're doing. I do not have time to go to Isaiah 14, and that's how I was going to tie this in. Well, maybe I do, if I, if I go very quickly and just point out a couple of things. Herbert Armstrong always went to 14 of Isaiah and 28 of Ezekiel to show that Satan was cast down to the earth. But he failed to take into context that Isaiah 14 is in the context of Babylon and Ezekiel 28 is in the context of the latter-day Tyre. And that the day of the Lord, if you go through chapter 13 and on down to 14, is the context. So, when he mentions Satan in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28, it is in the context of the day of the Lord. And when Satan is cast down, is what Revelation 12 is talking about. Now, he did fall, and, and prophecy is always dual. Certainly, he was cast out, but he has been allowed access back to the throne of God, to accuse the brethren in the end time. So when Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28 were written, they are written in prophecy. They're written in prophecy of the end time. Read them carefully and you'll see that. I don't have time to go through it. They are talking about the cast, same casting down the Revelation 12 is. He will never allow to be go to go back again, and the whole earth will become at rest, as it says in chapter 14. But if you don't take those scriptures into context, you don't understand that they are talking about the end time casting down, and you misapply Revelation 12 and think, well, we must be doing all right, so Satan must have been cast out. No! We are scattered and in trouble because... God spewed us out of his mouth for Laodiceanism. All of us, all slumbered and slept. Satan has not been cast down. We have. We must learn to govern ourselves properly and come back into the good graces of God so that he will exalt us to be the bride of Christ. That is the goal and purpose before us. So let us react when we have trouble in wisdom and in knowledge so that we can get in line with God and turn to him with heart, mind, body, and soul and be the kind of bride he would invite to be his bride.
That's what it's all about. The church is just here to lead you, to teach you, to shove you toward the Father, not come between you and the Father. That is proper knowledge and wisdom, and it will lead to eternal life in the kingdom of God as the bride of Christ. So let's understand that and understand what he's saying to us in Isaiah 33. And if we can understand that, then we can be those who are blessed that he talks about through the rest of this book. So we'll stop there for today.